Well, we'll say a good morning and Merry Christmas in advance. Christmas comes on a Friday this year. Here we are, though, the Sunday before for a Christmas message. And I have to say, I love it when a plan comes together. Because earlier this year, I I knew I wanted to start preaching through the Gospel of Matthew later in the year. And then I thought, you know, what if I kind of arranged it such that we get to preach through the Nativity of Jesus through the month of December, and we arrive at at the visit of the Magi on Christmas Sunday morning. And so that's what I did. And by God's providence, it actually worked. There were no interruptions. And so here we are. Matthew 2, 1 through 12 is the text. You can open your Bibles there now as we're just going through Matthew. But here a fitting passage for a Christmas Sunday. This passage tells of the visit of the Magi from the east. We want to study this passage in, in part to just set the record straight. On, on the birth story of Jesus. It's important that we do so because in the, the nativity story in most people's minds is actually inundated with myth and things that didn't actually happen. We get so many details of Christ's birth wrong because of all the, the folklore that has sprung up around it. Just a few examples. For instance, how did Mary get to Bethlehem? On a donkey, Right. Bible never mentions a donkey, just says she was traveling with Joseph. And also, when did Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem? On the night at which she gave birth? Doesn't say that either. It says she was simply in Bethlehem when the time had come for her to give birth. It's far more likely they were there for days, if not weeks in advance, uh, waiting for the birth. And then when they get to Bethlehem, most people think Joseph and Mary were rejected by all the ancient motels. And the innkeeper tells them there's no room at the inn, so they end up wandering into some barn. Uh, But first off, no innkeeper is ever mentioned in the Bible. And then secondly, that the word used for inn simply refers to a guest lodging area. So you remember the Last Supper where Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples? They were in an upper room. And that word for upper room is the same word for inn. It just refers to a, a guest chambers in a house. So it's far more likely that Mary and Joseph were staying with someone they knew in Bethlehem, probably a relative, when Jesus was born. But there was no room for them in the guest quarters, the guest chambers. So they stayed in the common area of the house. Later on, we find Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus. They're in a house, and chances are they never moved. They're just in the same house in which Jesus was born. Now, this common area in ancient Near East houses was where they kept the house animals or the the domestic animals like sheep. And so it is true that Jesus was laid in a manger, which was just a feeding trough for these household animals. But no animals are actually mentioned in the birth story. And most likely were not cattle grazing around Jesus as he lay there in the feeding trough. But on all the, the few details we do have suggest Mary and Joseph did not actually wander into some strange barn to give birth to their son. So like I said, there's a lot of folklore around the birth of Jesus that has sprung up. You have to be careful of it. You have to separate what the Bible actually says about his birth with what you see in a Christmas play. And that is very much the case when it comes to this visit of the Magi from the East. Most know them as the three kings. But that too is not accurate at all. The Bible never calls them kings. They weren't. The Bible never says there were three of them. There are probably many more. And the Bible never says they they showed up on the night of Christ's birth. 
They came much later. But over the centuries of church history, plenty of myth has grew up around these magi figures. In the Middle Ages, it became popular to refer to them as kings. Their names were supposedly Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. One came from Egypt, one came from uh, Greece, one came from India. The three kings were baptized by Thomas, and their bones were said to be discovered by St. Helena and then transferred to Milan. That's all about as true as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, but this is what has come over the years. And some of this might be surprising to you. You've been watching Christmas plays for years. You never had an idea that so many of the details were wrong. And you've got your nativity set up. And it's got these three little king figures just huddled around baby Jesus. You never even questioned it. They don't even belong there. How did all these myths infiltrate the real story of Christ's birth? The answer to that is, more often than not, our songs. All those beloved Christmas carols we sing, which are great. At the same time, some of them are filled with not-so-accurate statements. And those lyrics enter our minds, and we just accept them as true. Take, for instance, the lyrics to We Three Kings. This carol was written by Reverend John Henry Hopkins in 1857 for the General Theological Seminary of New York's Christmas pageant. And if you read most of the verses of this carol, they're great. They contain rich theology and great words of worship. The only problem is the opening line, we three kings of Orient are. But, you know, wait a second, where does the Bible say there were kings? Where does the Bible say there were three of them? And where does the Bible say they came from the Orient? There are many more hymns or Christmas carols like this that we sing without necessarily thinking about the words. And as a result, we have ingrained in in our minds several wrong things about the Christmas story. But if you want to get things right, and if you want to know what actually took place, what it was actually like on the night in which Christ was born, you've got to go back to the scriptures and the scriptures alone. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Not so much about the birth of Jesus, but what happened next with the visit of these magi. And that is recorded in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. And I want us to get to the bottom of of these figures and their importance. Who are these strangers from afar? Why did they travel from the east to visit Jesus? Why does Matthew tell us about them? Matthew alone records the visit of the Magi. Why, why are we learning about this? Well, we're going to find out. We're going to make our way through Matthew 2, just parsing through the real details of the visit of the Magi. Hopefully that we might grasp their impact on the birth story of Jesus. We're going to approach this passage, what might be called running commentary style, which means no special outline for today. Just going to go through this passage verse by verse, reading and explaining as we go, help you get acquainted with who these guys are and and why they showed up. So let's get started. Obviously in verse one, excuse me, the first two verses are, loaded with information. And they really set up the background and the setting of this passage. So we'll spend a little extra time here. So let's begin Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. You can stop there. Right off the bat, we're introduced to these central characters in this passage, the Magi. 
And we need to begin by getting better acquainted with them. We've already been exposed to some myths about these magi, but how about some, some facts? Who were these people? What can we establish from Scripture about who they were? Well, how about this? Just to give you some structure here, let's try and help you answer six questions about these magi using the typical who, what, where, when, why, and how. Answer six questions about them from the text just to help you get to know who they really were and what they were up to. So let's just start by doing that. Follow along. The first question, who were these magi? Who were they? First things first, who are these figures? We can just start with the word for wise men or for magi. That's just the word in the Greek, magi. It's in the plural. It refers to a magician or a sorcerer. Someone associated with the occult. And yes, this is from where we get our words magic and magician. It comes from the Greek word magi. But the meaning of this word and the people it describes goes much further back. The magi were a tribe of people going back to the 7th century BC. They were a tribe known for their wisdom and their knowledge. They specialized in the study of the stars, astronomy and astrology. These were the guys who were writing the the horoscopes of the ancient world. Some became quite advanced in the study of mathematics and science. So all in all, though, the picture of the Magi in the ancient world is kind of a mixed bag. Some appear like just charlatans and occultists, but others appear like genuine men of knowledge and wisdom. For this reason, though, they rose to positions of great power and prominence in ancient kingdoms. Magi held some of the highest offices in the Medo-Persian and later Babylonian empires. They were at the very top next to the king. They weren't kings, but they were known as kingmakers because they wielded so much influence over these kingdoms that they largely determined who would be the next king. We encounter magi in the Old Testament. They show up five times in the book of Daniel, which took place in Babylon. And the Magi were a major part of the king's advisory council. Like the president today has a cabinet of advisors. Now the ancient cabinet of the king was filled largely with Magi, these wise men, these knowledgeable men. And Daniel himself became one of them. The rest of the Magi in Babylon, though, they ended up loving Daniel and serving Daniel. That's because, if you remember, he saved their lives. King Nebuchadnezzar was about to exterminate all of the Magi. He gave an order to kill all the Magi. That's because he was frustrated with them. They could not tell him his dream or interpret it. So he was ready to just do away with them. He thought they were all frauds. But Daniel could. God gave him the dream and its interpretation, and he spared the lives of the Magi. And as a result, Daniel himself became ruler over all of these people, these Magi. You learn that in Daniel 2.48, which says that the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men or magi of Babylon. Daniel's influence over these magi will come into play later, but for now, this is who these men are. They're men of knowledge, knowledge of the stars, knowledge of the occult. Back to Matthew 2, a second question. What were they doing? What were they doing? 
Go back to verse 1. It says again, now in the days, or rather now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So this group of Magi show up in Jerusalem and what are they doing? They're looking for Jesus and they've come to worship him. The king of the Jews, this is quite unexpected. They didn't come to study or to trade. They didn't come to vacation or sightsee. They didn't even come to visit the acting king of the Jews, Herod. No, they came to find the newborn king of the Jews and they came to worship him. Already you can see from the Magi in this account in Matthew that that God is starting to draw all men to himself through his son. Even from his birth, he's drawing the nations to him. It doesn't matter if you have a pagan background. Everyone starts off as an unbeliever. But Jesus is the way to life for all people, Jew and Gentile. And Matthew's gospel really shows that from these magi at the beginning. The third question, where did they come from? Where did they come from? Or or better would be from where did they come? But we'll stick with where did they come from? Now, plain and simple, verse 1 says they came from the east. That's it. They just came from the east. Where in the east? Doesn't say. We don't know for sure. Given their background, it's likely they came from the the regions of Persia or Babylon, those old empires, which would be today modern-day Iraq or Iran. Really the same place Abraham came from. That means if they really are coming from that far east, they're taking about a 700-mile trek to get all the way around and down to Jerusalem just to find this newborn king of the Jews. Keep that in mind for later as well. Question four, when, when did they arrive? We're still just looking at the text, building the, the basic facts about who these guys were. When did they arrive? Let's try and figure out the timeline here. When is all this happening? Notice verse one does not say they just showed up at Christ's door. This is taking place after Jesus was already born in Bethlehem. And their first stop wasn't even Bethlehem. Where did they show up first? It says they arrived first in Jerusalem. And they arrived after he's already born in Bethlehem. So the question then is, how long after? Like a day after, a week, a month? Well, you know, we learn a little bit in Luke chapter 2, parallel account of Christ's birth. Learn about a few things that took place right after Jesus was born. So after he's born, eight days later, what happens? He's circumcised according to the Jewish law. And then after that, 33 days later, what happened? Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer the the customary sacrifices dedicating their child to the Lord. This is also according to Jewish law and custom. This offering was supposed to consist of a a one-year-old lamb and a, a turtle dove or a pigeon. But the law made provision that if you were extremely poor, you could just offer two doves or two pigeons. And so according to Luke 2, do you remember what kind of offering Mary and Joseph brought for Jesus? They brought just two pigeons because they were dirt poor. 
They could only afford the, the lowest rung sacrifice for Jesus, and that's what they offered. But when you think about this, it's actually pretty good evidence that the Magi had not shown up by this time, because the Magi brought with them what? Gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. They didn't shop at the Dollar Tree like, like we do. They were going big. All that goes to say, though, is after they were done, Mary and Joseph weren't poor anymore. They didn't say how much they brought, but these were gifts for royalty, gifts of significant wealth. After that, Mary and Joseph could have easily afforded a one-year-old lamb for the sacrifice. So the fact that they're still offering a couple of doves or a couple of pigeons shows that at least after 40 days uh, after Jesus is born, they still seem to be extremely poor. Doesn't seem like the Magi have been there yet. Seems like only after this, the Magi arrived. But it couldn't be too much after because the Magi interact with Herod. And Herod himself died about a year after Christ was born. So you put all this together and it appears the Magi don't visit Jesus until he's around two to six months old. Probably around two to six months old. You know what that means though as a bottom line? It really blows a hole in your nativity scene. Like we said before, your three little wise men figures, whether they're kings or just fancy looking guys, they, they don't belong in your little makeshift barn. They don't belong around baby Jesus. So if they're huddled up there, you got to move them. You got to move them like halfway across the room. Just put them somewhere where it looks like they're two months away. And you can march them closer each day after in the new year. Keep it up till February. And... All right, well, now on to a more significant question. Question number five is the why question. Why were they so interested in Jesus? Why were they interested in Jesus? These Magi were Gentiles. They're not Jews. So why on earth are they traveling 700 plus miles to come and worship the king of the Jews? He's not even their king. It seems a bit odd, but you have to consider a few things. You have to remember that thousands of Jews remained in Persia and Babylon after the end of the exile. Israel was exiled to Persia and Babylon, those regions. And some came back, but honestly, the majority stayed and just permanently lived in Persia and Babylon. And, and they, at times, influenced those around them. So could these magi have been influenced by Jewish teaching on the Messiah? That seems possible, especially if they really are downstream of Daniel's influence. Daniel was really the number two guy in Babylon, the ruler of these magi. Did the Magi come to hope in Israel's Messiah through this, this Jewish lineage that remained in Babylon? We can't say that for sure. We can say, though, what, what we find in verse 2. They question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then they say, for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So, they give the answer as to why they're searching for Jesus. The, the, the main answer they give is, well, they saw a star. That's why they're there. They saw his star in the east. Now, that just brings up a whole new set of questions, though, like what on earth or, or what in heaven is this star? And because the Magi were known for their study of the stars, some think it was some sort of space phenomena. People have suggested a distant supernova, a comet, a meteor, even the planet Jupiter. 
These are all options, but they seem unlikely just given the supernatural nature of this star and really its supernatural purpose. These magi saw this this star thing in the east where they lived. By the way, the word for star is really just referring to a very bright light. But this star did not guide them to Jerusalem. That's another myth that we get programmed in, that they followed the star all the way from Babylon to Jerusalem. That's not what the text says. They saw the star on the east, yes. Then it says they went to Jerusalem, just really on their own. Why did they go to Jerusalem? Because they're looking for the newborn king of the Jews. Where do you go to find the king of the Jews? Go to Jerusalem, the city of David. But when they got to Jerusalem, they didn't find the king of the Jews. And that's when the text says the star then reappeared because it had disappeared. It reappears and then it does lead them from Jerusalem five miles south to Bethlehem. That comes later in verse 9. We can read it now though. Verse 9 says, After hearing the king, they went their way and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Point's pretty clear, though. This is no ordinary star. Stars appear to move in the sky, but they don't guide. They don't lead. They don't appear and disappear. They don't hover over a place. Nothing we know fits this description. It's best to just take this as purely supernatural. And that makes the most sense because a supernatural birth was taking place. If this star is supernatural, still then what is it? Most would surmise, and I would agree, that it's likely a representation of God's own glory, his Shekinah glory. Most times when God reveals himself in the Old Testament, it's in some form of light. God is said to be shrouded in light. In the Old Testament, when people approached God's presence and they came back, what happened? They're always glowing. They're radiating light. I think the Bible doesn't say, but to think that this star, this radiant light in the sky, which is what this word means, was in fact a form of God's glory guiding these men to Bethlehem seems not that far off to me. All right, one last question here. Question six, how did they learn about Jesus' birth? How did they learn about his birth? Which is a good question. How did these guys know that the king of the Jews had been born. Again, we have the possibility that, that somehow Daniel taught them. I mean, it says they saw his star in the east. How did they even know to interpret this star that, was, that now is telling them? That means the Messiah has come. Like, how did they even know any of this? Well, look, Daniel was one of the greatest Jewish prophets. And his prophecies, read the book of Daniel, they give us the most detailed and specific predictions about the timing of the Messiah's coming. That's for another day. But could Daniel have taught them some revelation about the timing of the Messiah that was orally passed down through the tradition of the Magi and and they just knew it was time. They saw the star that was prophesied. We don't know. We can't say. Can't be dogmatic, but that, that could entirely be possible. But, you know, as fun as that sounds, I think a more supernatural explanation is in order. It seems most likely that God simply spoke to these magi. He revealed himself to them and told them directly about the birth of the king of the Jews. Later, down in verse 12, these magi are warned by God in a dream. 
not to return to Jerusalem. It doesn't seem like this is the first time they've heard from God in a dream. They're not startled by this dream that God is communicating to them. and They just immediately obey. Seems like when they first saw this star, I would imagine God spoke to them in another dream, telling them the significance of this star. But apart from that, it's really left to mystery. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground just trying to establish the basic facts of who these magi are. A quick recap. Who were these magi? They are a group or sect of wise men from the east. Knowledge of the stars. Knowledge of the occult. What were they doing? They're looking for the newborn king of the Jews. Where did they come from? Came from the east. Probably the, the regions of Babylon or Persia. When did they come? Seems like they arrived anywhere from two to six months after Jesus was born. Why were they interested in him? Well, because God's star, likely a representation of God's glory, compelled them and guided them to Jesus. And how did they even learn about the birth of Jesus in the first place? Perhaps through Daniel's teaching, but likely God revealed himself to them, maybe in a dream. Now, there's actually one quick bonus question I skipped over that it's worth answering. We'll sneak it in here. Another how question. How many magi were there? How many of these guys showed up? We're we're accustomed to thinking there's three of them. And people think that because three types of gifts were given. So it could be that there were three of them. But the text never actually says their numbers. It never says there were three of them. In fact, I would say their numbers were probably much larger And you go back to verse 1. It says when they show up in Bethlehem, they're they're asking around in verse 2. They're saying, where is the newborn king? In verse 2, or verse 1, the end, it says, saying that that's a present participle, meaning they're they're just repeatedly asking. So this group of magi is pictured as just going around town, repeatedly asking people, where's the newborn king? Where's the newborn king? Don't, Don't you guys know you're the Jews? Where's the newborn king? king of the Jews. And the result, verse 3, it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And so here's the point. Three guys walking through a huge city, they're not going to cause this much of a stir. But you see, all of Jerusalem was troubled because of these magi. Their questioning made it to the top ranks to the king himself. I think this leads us to believe that they're, they're causing quite a scene in Jerusalem. I mean, really think about it. You're going on a 700-mile trek. You don't just take three guys for that. You have a, a caravan of goods and supplies, food. They have all this, these gifts. That's significant wealth. You don't leave that unguarded. It's more likely that this magi traveled with a, a sizable caravan, like they often did, with soldiers, with servants, with animals. This is a several-month endeavor. And so when this this entourage shows up in town, everyone knew about them. Everyone knew, like, what is going on here? So how many were there? We don't know. But I would surmise there, there were probably dozens of people in this entourage of magi that showed up. All right, so we've just covered a couple of verses, but... They really do establish a lot. They dispel a lot of the myths surrounding these magi and that they fill in the blanks. Who were these guys? What were they up to? We have some facts. Let's, let's keep going. Let's get back to verse 3. 
After they show up, it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And it says, and all Jerusalem with him. So what's this about? Why, why is Herod so troubled that these magi were looking for the king of the Jews? Well, just think about it. Who was the king of the Jews? Herod. But here is this entourage of magi pulling up to his city, and they're looking for the newborn king of the Jews. That does not sit well with him. Does this mean Herod's days are numbered? Do they know something he doesn't know? At this point, Herod's about 70 years old. He has no plans to relinquish his rule to some newborn king of the Jews at any time. So that the, just the notion of a newborn king who might potentially challenge his rule, he is not happy about that. This makes a little more sense when you know a little more of who Herod was. Back in 40 BC, Herod was declared to be king by the Roman Senate, king of the Jews. He was not a Jew, though. He was an Edomite, which meant he had no right to rule over the Jewish people. And so the Jews always resented his rule over them. Meanwhile, Herod was absolutely desperate to hold on to his power at all costs. Anyone who threatened his rule was killed. He had his wife's brother drowned. It eventually forced his wife to kill herself, along with his mother and two of their own sons. Anyone who threatened him, that's what's going to happen. Herod died about a year after Jesus was born. But before his death, he knew no one would mourn him. So as one last act of cruelty, before he died, he had many of the leading people of Jerusalem arrested and imprisoned. And he gave orders for them to be executed upon his death so that it would appear people were mourning him across the city while they were really mourning their loved ones. This act of cruelty was only eclipsed by his mass murder of all the newborn boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. We learn about that later in Matthew 2. So this is Herod. Herod the king, or he was known as Herod the Great. As you can see, it's not a very fitting title. There's a little revisionist history there. But he would literally kill his own family members to keep his grasp on the throne. So you can imagine why he's not too happy about upon hearing that a newborn king of the Jews has appeared. And now that this group from the east has already come to worship him. Again, he's about 70 years old, but he's determined to crush all threats to his rule to the bitter end. And the last thing Herod needed was, was another resurrection by these Jews and some king figure for them to rally around. So Herod was literally shaken up, it says. And all Jerusalem with him, because they knew that if Herod was troubled, bloodshed's not far behind. The citizens were probably more disturbed by the reaction of Herod than the presence of the Magi, because they knew living under a harsh dictator, whenever he's not happy, innocent people are probably going to die. And that is what happens later. But for now, Herod takes action. Let's keep going, verses 4 through 6. Look at verse 4. It says, Gathering together, all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler 
who will shepherd my people, Israel. So Herod assembles together the chief priests and the scribes of the people. These were the, the religious leaders of the Jews. The priests presided over the temple, but they were extremely corrupt. The scribes were the Pharisees, keepers of the law, but they were terribly legalistic. Still, because of their knowledge of the scriptures, Herod asked these men uh, where this Messiah was supposed to be born. Herod was no Jew, but he knew their customs. He knew about their messianic expectations, so he wanted to know what they knew. And look, without difficulty, the scribes and priests easily answer him, like, they all knew this, Micah 5, 2. That the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem, the storied little town, the city of David's birth. The Messiah was promised, predicted to come from there. But Herod's not done on his quest for more information. He figures out from the scribes the location of this Messiah's birth. Now he just needs to figure out the timing of the birth. That's what he's up to in verse 7 and 8. Verse 7 says, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Notice, Herod is not interested in the purpose of the star. There's no question about what does this mean? Only the timing at which it first appeared to them in the east. Also notice how this is being done in secret. He had secret plans going on here that he didn't want the people to know about. He wondered, hey, did he want to go and and really worship the king of the Jews too? Not so much, but that's what he wanted the Magi to believe. So he sends them off to Bethlehem and says, hey, when you find him, just come let us know. We want to worship him too. All under pretense, as you know, that will come into play later on. But for now, though, the Magi depart and Herod exits the scene and a new character enters the scene. The main character, which is the child. Verse 9 says, after hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. With great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Notice here the star reappears, implying that it had disappeared. It did not lead them all the way from the east. Now, however, it does seem like it is guiding them on the short trip, just the short five miles from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. The star then finally stands over the place where the child was. This place is not a barn. It's a house, like verse 11 says. And as we said before, most likely this is the same house in which Jesus was born. They had probably not left. Just the sight of the star, though, stopped in place Cause these magi to rejoice because they knew, they just knew that, that their journey was over. They'd reached their destination, which really wasn't a place. It was a person. They came all this way to find a person, this newborn king of the Jews. So they enter this house. They see Jesus. They see his mother, Mary. 
and they proceed to bow down and worship him. So we said last week, they didn't worship them. They didn't worship Mary. Paid Mary little attention. They worship just the child. And then they give to him these presents just as a token, as an expression of their heart's worship. And they are gifts fit for a king. Gold, which is an expected gift for royalty. Frankincense, which is a costly scented incense used only for special occasions. And myrrh, which is a very costly perfume coming from a tree in Arabia. And altogether, these gifts represented a lot of money, significant wealth. Back then, just a single bottle of myrrh would cost about $10,000 today. And so these gifts could help Joseph and Mary care for this very special child. And with that said, we can finish this paragraph now with verse 12. After this, it says, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. We see here how God communicates with these Magi in a dream, like he did with Joseph. And again, they're not alarmed. They don't question it. They just obey it, which to me implies, like I said, it's probably not the first time God had communicated to them in a dream. But this time, God tells them, don't go back the way you came. Don't return to Herod. He's got something devious planned. And so they return to the east, bypassing Jerusalem. Doesn't make Herod happy. It unleashes Herod's wrath. That's something we will see next time. For now, though, this this really ends the birth narrative of Jesus and the surrounding events. And these are the facts. This is the true story of the visit of the Magi from the east. Matthew 1 tells us what happened when Jesus was born. And Matthew 2 tells us what really happened in the days that followed. And so you kind of need to forget what you see in your school plays and forget what you sing in your Christmas carols. And if you really want to, to get the birth story of Jesus right, you've got to go back to Scripture alone. Now, hopefully this helps you straighten things out. But we're not quite done because... This Christmas story, it's not just a story. This is the revelation of God himself to you about the coming of his son, the king, Jesus, the Christ. And Matthew records what happened after Jesus was born to tell you something, to drive home a lesson about this king. Primarily, how you should respond to his coming. You know, in chapter 1, through the genealogy of Jesus and his birth story, Matthew is already making plain who Jesus is. He's not just a child. He is fully human. He's the son of David, son of Abraham, son of Mary. But he's also fully God, being the virgin-born son of God. He is Emmanuel, literally, God with us. So as a result of who this child is, what should you do? You should do what the Magi did. You should come down and bow down before him and worship him. That's simply how you treat a king. And this is the king of kings. And the question begs you to to answer, have you yourself come to recognize him as your king and worship him? Not everyone does. And Matthew, I think, also deliberately highlights a couple of wrong responses to the coming of Jesus as a warning, as a caution. And so I think we can finish now just by reflecting on this episode and, 
and considering the three ways you can respond to the coming of Jesus, even presented in this text, the three ways you can respond to the coming of Jesus. The first two are wrong, by the way. The first is the response of anger. The response of anger. And this, of course, comes from Herod. How did Herod respond to the coming of Jesus? It wasn't worship. He was filled with this secret rage. Why would it make him so angry? The fact that these magi came to worship this other person. Well, for Herod, he was fueled by self-worship. He wanted all power and glory for himself. There's no worship to share. And Herod felt threatened by Jesus. How could there be another king of the Jews? Herod was the acting king of the Jews. He's the only one. So Herod was offended by these magi. I mean, they come into his town looking to worship the king of the Jews, but they weren't talking about him. That just stabbed his pride. He wanted to be greater than this Jesus. He wanted no threats to his rule. And so when he found out about this newborn king, what does he do? He tries to destroy him. This is a preview from our next passage, but look down at verse 16. It says, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Although Jesus would not have been two years old at this point, most likely Herod didn't want to take any chances in case he was tricked by the Magi a second time. But what a vicious response. And remember, Herod knew this was supposedly the Messiah. He understood the Magi were looking for the promised one, but he still tried to kill him. He still was raging against the Lord's anointed, as Psalm 2 says. That's all as a vain thing. But his hatred was not just for this newborn king. His hatred was really for God himself. He would not be ruled in his life by God or anyone else. And so we find here the response of anger toward Jesus. And really, it's, it's none other than the response of Satan himself and his Antichrist. All who hate God respond like this. They're filled with rage. Like John 3.20 says, Everyone who does evil hates the light. They can't stand it. And many in the world still loathe Jesus. They hate him because they they know in their heart his perfect righteousness condemns them as sinners. It, it, It makes them guilty before a holy God. And for them to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, that would mean they would have to first condemn themselves as guilty sinners. That's what it takes. To say he's really Lord means what he said is true. That means you're in trouble. You have to convict yourself as guilty before this creator God. But even though Jesus came to save sinners in their pride, they're not going to do that. They're not going to deny self. They will not acknowledge him as their Lord. They refuse to humble themselves and go to Jesus for forgiveness. And in their hardness, they would rather like Herod kill him. Jesus came today, he'd, he'd be killed again, no doubt, over and over again. Every generation would have crucified the Messiah. Needless to say, though, this is the wrong response to Jesus. And as Herod found out, and as all who hate him find out, if you reject him now as your Savior, 
One day he will greet you as your judge. But this is not the only wrong response. Secondly, the response of apathy. The response of apathy. The response of Herod is wrong, but in a sense, we kind of expect it. He's an extremely wicked king. We expect him to hate Jesus. Like, we know better. But the response of the religious leaders is truly unexpected, especially at this point in Matthew's gospel. We're just being introduced to these guys. They're supposed to be the leaders of Israel in worship. But the response we see from them is apathy. I mean, just think, the priests and the scribes, they knew what these magi were searching for. The Messiah, the king of the Jews. These magi were Gentiles. These religious leaders were Jews. This is their king. This is their Messiah. They don't seem to care. They also knew exactly where the prophetic birthplace of the Messiah was to be. Bethlehem. And so it really begs the question like, why didn't they go to Bethlehem too? Why not tag along with the Magi and go check it out? There was even a sliver of a chance that the Messiah had actually been born. You think they'd be excited. You think they'd at least go investigate. But none of them went to Bethlehem. Not a single one of them went down to Bethlehem. Why not? Because they didn't care. And they didn't believe. As we will learn later in Matthew, these Jewish leaders, they were not true worshipers. They did not have true faith. And they were not truly looking for the Messiah. You have these Gentile magi who are willing to travel 700 plus miles to find the king of the Jews. Meanwhile, these Jews themselves wouldn't even travel five miles to go check it out. Just a couple hour journey. This is none other than apathy and unbelief. They didn't care about the birth of their own king. Now, ironically, Jesus would not be called king of the Jews again until his death. And some 30 years later, it would be these same Jews who would be the ones to crucify him as their apathy turned to anger. And it always does. You can't remain indifferent toward Jesus for very long. It will always elicit either love and worship or anger and rejection. Many people today, though, even many in the church, act indifferent toward Jesus. Many claim to be Christians, but they are apathetic as ever about the faith. You would not know they were Christians by observing them. They don't seem to really care. And I think that's because they don't really get Jesus. They might know the, the data, but they don't really apprehend. They've not believed who he really is. Namely, the king, your king, the king of kings. When you really get that, this is the creator God come down to die for you. It only demands one response, and that's worship. But if Jesus is just a distant afterthought in your life, if you just mostly live as you please, you just come to church once or twice a year, like the religious leaders, that, that's just unbelief masked in a little religion. It doesn't matter if you can pass a Bible quiz like these people. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian. There's only one thing that can save you and, and make you right with your God, and it's faith in this Christ. And that faith is only evidenced by one type of response. And that's number three, the response of 
of adoration. The response of adoration. And finally, we come to the response of the Magi, which is one of true worship. This response, really, it's all the more staggering when you remember who they were. These were Gentiles from a pagan society. And the Jews looked down on them as dogs. Yet somehow, God revealed himself to them, and they become the true worshipers. That's not unexpected, though, as this promised Messiah was always said to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. This Jewish Messiah was their Messiah. And the Magi foreshadow God's plan to, to open the door of salvation to all the nations. God's plan was always to elicit praise from all the nations in the coming of his son. And Matthew especially includes this in his gospel to show that fact. And regarding these Magi, they had the response of faith, which always translates into worship. Their worship was seen in their sacrifice. They traveled 700, really, you know, they had to go back home. So 1,400 miles to worship this newborn king. And that was not an easy thing to do back then. Their worship was seen in their giving. They gave significant wealth as just a token of their love. And their, give, their worship was seen in their joy. Verse 10 says, when they came upon the Messiah, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a very redundant phrase. It's like Matthew just piling on every superlative he knows just to show that they were really, really happy. Herod didn't rejoice. And the Jews didn't even rejoice. Only these magi are rejoicing at the news of his birth. That's because they adored him. They came to adore him, to worship him. And they knew Jesus, he's, he's king of the Jews, but he's not actually only king of the Jews. He's the king of all kings, which means he's their king too. And so they fell down to the ground and they worshiped him when they saw him. Because that's how you treat a king. That's especially how you treat the king of kings. And what makes this king doubly worthy of worship is what he would go on to do. This child would one day die on the cross as this perfect, once for all, substitute sacrifice for you, for your sins. He would bear all of, all of the sin and the guilt and the shame of his people on the cross and, and bear God's full weight of wrath toward them. He would take it all. What king like this has ever given of himself like this for his people. And now only those who go to Jesus by faith and who bow the knee, offer up their lives and respond to him in worship will experience his gift of salvation. He's given the real Christmas gift and it's his life for your life. If you've not given your life back to him, do that today. Life is short and fleeting. Death comes quickly. And always unexpectedly. So don't let another year or another Christmas go by with, without getting right with your God. And you only do that one way. It's like these magi. By bowing down before him in your heart. Offering up your lives as a thanksgiving offering by faith. And worshiping your king. Look, you should know God has a plan for this world. It involved sending his son into this world in the likeness of man. It involved him 
humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. He did that to redeem for himself men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. One day, God, Christ will return, and then you'll find that God's plan involves every tongue confessing him as Lord, and every knee bowing to him. I pray you do this now unto salvation, and not later unto judgment, because every knee will eventually bow to Jesus as king. But follow these magi. Behold Jesus for who he truly is, Give him the glory. I think it's fitting for us to end with another lyric from a Christmas carol. But this one gets right the response to the coming of Jesus. Where it says, O come, all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. And let's adore him together. Lord God, we, we give our hearts praise and adoration to your son, Christ the King, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for opening our eyes to behold who he really is. We, we cannot boast, Lord, for those of us who, who know him, who have received him. There's no boasting because it was only you and your grace that, that opened our eyes in the first place to behold him, to adore him. But we can give you thanks. We can't offer you any, any real gifts, Lord. You need no money, but we can give you our lives, our hearts, our voices, our worship. And by that sacrifice, that offering, you are pleased. You are glorified and Christ is adored. So we do that now, Lord. We pray you, you, you purify our hearts and you, you squeeze us for every drop of glory we can give to you. For your name's sake, for all that you have done, you and your son, the king, is worthy. And for those who've not yielded, Lord, open their eyes this very moment to behold in Christ their, their King, their only hope of change, of new birth, of salvation, of forgiveness. May they once for all bow the knee and love him, and they will find new life in return. Thank you for Christmas and the gift you've given us for all these years. And may we share that gift with others around us this year and every year, and the greatest gift. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.